Continuing our series in James's letter, I'm going to read it for us. So James chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but that does nothing about their physical needs, and what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good, Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the chance to gather together as your people. And we pray that you'd be speaking through me and help us all to hear what it is that you want to say to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, so far in this series, we have looked at the dangers of being double-minded, the danger of deception, and the danger of discrimination. And today I'm going to talk about the danger of dead faith. The danger of dead faith. Remember a couple of weeks ago, Jago, he spoke about uh, Mr. Bean with the, the jump cable, trying desperately to resuscitate this man, and there being this moment of wild activity. But in reality, this man, he was dead as a dodo. What does James mean by dead faith here? We're talking tonight about the danger of dead faith. What does dead faith mean? Well, have a look at verse 24, what James writes in verse 24. He says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now, this this is so controversial. I mean, Martin Luther, he wanted to get rid of the book of James from the Bible. But I think rather than hitting delete, let's delve a little bit deeper. Rather than take to the book of James with a pair of scissors, let's understand what James was meaning. Because while Paul, he was, Paul was writing often to people that thought they had to somehow earn their salvation. And James, he is writing to people who think they have faith, who think they're all sorted and everything is tickety-boo. Let me be crystal clear. You do not add anything to the cross of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ's death, his blood on the cross, 
pays for your sin and my sin. And we are saved by Christ and Christ alone. Christ, he is the way in and he is the way on. That your sins past, present and future are paid for. That God forgives you, that God loves you and God likes you. You do not add anything to the cross of Christ. You can't earn a thing. All of the riches of Jesus Christ handed to you just by believing in him, by faith. But hang on a minute. James says that we're not saved by faith alone. There's actually a better translation of James in this verse 24. That he, what he's actually saying here is, is we're not saved by faith that is alone. That yes, faith alone justifies, but faith which justifies is never alone. And actually, faith and works, they actually, they actually always go together, like bread and butter, like fish and chips, like ant and deck. Maybe not. Well, these, these, these works, these deeds, what are they? Remember what Tim looked at last week. Tim looked at this royal law of love. We see there in verse 8. It's loving God with everything. And it's loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. And we see that in chapter 1 as well, what we've looked at already in this series. That this all comes back to love. But I hate to break it to you. There's a news flash. I have not loved God. God perfectly this past week. I have not loved my neighbors as I've loved myself perfectly either. And God, he's not looking for perfection. He's looking for progress. Am I progressing? Am I growing in my love for God and my love for those around me? Are my faith and works, are they working hand in hand? James, he has three warnings to tell us about what it means of of the danger of having dead faith, of having faith without works. Firstly, he says that faith without works is useless. Have a look there in verse 14. James writes, what good is it? What good is it if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? In other words, it's no use. It's useless. Look at verse 15. James says, if you come across someone who is needy and poor, and you just say to them, bless you, you don't actually do anything to help them, then, well, it's useless in two ways. Firstly, it's useless for the person that you come across, because they're still poor and naked and without food. But secondly, it's useless for the person claiming to have faith as well. You know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And James is saying, you have faith, prove it. Show me, show me the evidence that you actually really have faith. And if our faith doesn't sort of break out of the spiritual and into real life and real people and real problems, then what use is it? You skip down to verse 20, and James asks a person, He asks a person, maybe hypothetical, maybe a real person, we don't know, but he asks there. He says, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? 
It's useless. And so when in, in verse 14, James is saying someone who claims to have faith, what he's really saying there is you and your so-called faith. I don't know what kind of weird faith that is that you've got going on there. A faith that actually doesn't break out into the, the practical and then if you're trying to separate faith and works, these things are actually there, they're a category error. Because faith and works always go together. If you have faith, then faith works. It's not useless. But this is about faith that works. Remember that terrifying thing that Jesus says. You know that one day he will look people in the eye who claim to have faith and he will look at them and he will say to them as he separates the the sheep from the goats he will look at them and he will say I was hungry and you gave me no food I was thirsty and you gave me no drink I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me which is the next thing is that not just Not only is faith without works useless, but faith without works cannot save. It cannot save you and me. We've looked at verse 14 already, but how does James end verse 14? What good is it, he asks, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? That faith, it's it's useless and it doesn't save you. And so James then says in in verse 19, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You know, at least the demons have something going for them here. That what they believe actually impacts them. You know, if we reduce faith to an intellectual belief, to just an intellectual assent to proper doctrine, if that's all faith is, then that is not saving faith. The demons, they have impeccable faith. They have impeccable doctrine. But what use is it? Because they're not saved. And so Jesus, he's writing, James is writing to people that are in the church who confess an orthodox faith, and they are supporters of the faith. You know, they have the fish logo on their car. They have a favorite worship album. They have a favorite Christian author. They go to festivals and conferences. But they, they don't love God. And this has not led to loving others. And, and James's argument is, therefore, they are not Christians. Remember back to Jago's talk on the danger of deception. You know, we so often deceive ourselves, don't we? I actually think the, the best testimonies, the best stories of people being saved, are actually they're, they're, they're not the stories about uh, those who've been heroin addicts and violent criminals. You know, those stories are amazing. But I think the really amazing testimonies are of people that have grown up in Christian homes and they've learned how to walk like a Christian, how to talk like a Christian. And yet at some point, their faith has become real for them. You know, it's actually saved them. 
John Wesley, he, 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 he was ordained for 10 years as a minister before his heart was strangely warmed, before he was saved. And all of the striving, all of the effort a focus on his faith, of focus on doing good works. All of that could just go as the Holy Spirit freed him and enabled him to live the life that he was called to live. Now, you, you may have been at the very heart of church all of your life, but have you met Jesus Christ? Faith without works is useless, and faith without works cannot save. So, what does saving faith look like? Have a look at verse 18. James, he goes really passive-aggressive here in this dialogue that he's having with this antagonist. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. And then James says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. So what does James say to this person who says, I have faith without works? It's like saying, you know, look at this. Look at this chair that we have here. Now, you, Mr. Antagonist, you're saying that you believe that this chair will hold you. That is what exercising faith is. I believe, too, that this chair will hold me. I'm going to prove to you that I believe that this chair will hold me by sitting in it. And that's what he does. And so he says to this other guy, he says, you believe that the chair will hold you, sit in the chair. And that guy is just like, well, you know, I'm not really sure I want a seat right now. And, and James is saying, but don't you believe that the chair will hold you? And the guy goes, yeah, yeah, of course I believe that the chair will hold me. I just don't want to take a seat right now. And James is saying to him, why don't you just take a seat? Why don't you prove to me that you can take a seat, that you believe this? And, and the other person is saying, you, you know what? I really believe that this chair will hold me. I've read some really good books about some inspiring people that, that sat in the chair. You know, I really like the qualities of this chair. I've been tweeting about this chair. And, and James is saying, well, you know, why don't you sit in the chair? And, you know, this person's going, you know, can't we just, you know, stand and talk for a while? And James is saying, yeah, but sooner or later, you're going to get tired. Why don't you sit in the chair? And what's going on here is this, this person that won't sit in the chair, that they are being double-minded. That they, they don't really trust Jesus. And if you'll excuse me mixing metaphors for a moment, if you think back to that image of the escalator... That's what's going on here, is someone is trying to have one foot on the world and one foot on God at the same time. And those things, they, they don't work. This man doesn't really trust Jesus. Remember, this is not about faith versus works, but this is about having faith that works. Does your faith work? Or is it useless? Does, does your faith actually save you? And to explain this more, James, he goes into two different case studies for us. Do you remember the, the bold faith series that Jago spoke on earlier in the year, if you've been around for a while? 
this series uh, where he looked at Abraham, about bold faith that uh, obeys God and trusts him. Have a look there in verse 21. James writes, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and actions were working together and that his faith was made complete by what he did. You know, let's not dehumanize Abraham. This wasn't academic for him. This son that he longed for, you know, he, he placed him on the altar. Abraham, he, he, he acted upon what he heard. And then next, James writes about Rahab the prostitute. A slightly awkward choice, James. You know, I think we can all get behind Abraham. You know, one of the fathers of the faith. We teach children to sing songs about Father Abraham. We don't teach children to sing songs about Rahab the prostitute. But can you imagine, just for a minute, too, what Rahab had to endure? Can you imagine the abuse that she had to endure? Can you imagine the longings of her heart? And so there are the the spies being sent out by Joshua to scout out Jericho. You know, they've come and they're going to conquer this massive fortified city. And Rahab, having caught wind that God's people were coming, that salvation was coming, she began to help the spies. And then when she heard that word had gotten out that the spies were there, she hid them and she redirected them and she put her faith, the small faith that she had, that God would usher in what is new, that God would usher in a new beginning for her. So, what do I need to do to have saving faith? Or how simple was Rahab's step? You know, hide the people. You can imagine her saying to God, well, God, what if they come in here and use me? What if these people come in here and they take advantage of me? And God is saying, trust me, Rahab. And so she says, okay, hide over here. Remember me. Remember me when your God gives you this city. And so Rahab, she finds herself in the lineage of our Savior Jesus Christ. And therefore, she's in our family too. Rahab just took a step. You know, by using Rahab as an example here, James is making it very clear that we do not earn our salvation by being a good person. Rather, he is demonstrating what, what Eugene Peterson translates as a seamless unity of believing and doing. You know, Rahab, she sat in the chair by just a simple act of obedience. Abraham, he sat in the chair by placing Isaac on the altar. You know, they they acted on what they heard. These people, they were not superheroes. You know, they didn't wear capes. They were flawed people. This is not for strong people. This is for weak people. I'm weak. 
I need a chair, I need a seat, I need to sit down. And Jesus saves me. What does saving faith look like? You know, not, not everyone gives to the point of, of having to depend on Jesus Christ completely. You know, everyone loves. Not everyone has learned to love themselves in the way that God loves them. Not everyone loves the poor as much as they love themselves. Not everyone is like Botham Jean's brother. You know, this 18-year-old man called Brant Jean. I don't know if you saw this a few weeks ago. That Brant, his, his brother, was murdered by a police officer. And as the person was convicted in the courtroom and sentenced to 10 years in prison, this 18-year-old man, Brant, he said to her, he said to the person who'd been convicted, he said, I love you. That Jesus loves you. I forgive you. I don't even want you to go to prison. And then he begged, he begged and pleaded with the judge to let him step down from his stand and go and give her a hug and embrace her. You know, when I saw that video, I cried buckets. Because that action, that only makes sense if you are letting Jesus take the the full force and the full weight, the full confidence of your life. So faith without works is useless. Faith without works doesn't save. Finally, faith without works is dead. It is no faith at all. We see that in verse 17. We see that in in verse 26 as well. But let's have a look at verse 17. James writes there, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Charles Spurgeon, who who, uh, preached just down the road in Elephant and Castle, he had this image that he used to describe this of, of an apple tree in an orchard. And he said that if you had this apple tree in an orchard, and if the apple tree didn't actually bear fruit, if it didn't bear apples, if it didn't have leaves growing as well, you know, probably in the first year, the, the orchard owner wouldn't cut down the tree. Maybe not even in the second or the third, but by the time you get to about the fourth year, the owner of the orchard will have concluded that the tree is dead that it's not alive, so he will tear it out. You know, it's not the leaves, it's not the apples that make the tree alive. But the leaves and the apples show that the tree is alive. You know, I think some of you, you're you're hearing this talk tonight. You're looking at this passage. You're looking particularly at, at verse 24 where it says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And you look at that, and you're like, okay, Jamie, give me the list. 
What's the list? What, do I, what have I got to do? You know, I, I, I really like lists. I, I find them really useful. You know, I, I note down everything on, on Evernote on my phone, and I, I write lists in my, in my notebook, and I love the satisfaction of ticking things off the list. And I think some of you are like, what's the list? What have I got to do? You know, how many homeless people do I need to buy lunch for? You know, how, how early do I need to wake up to pray and read the Bible? What's the list? And you know, your, your inner legalist is sort of champing at the bit. But the question today is not, are you ticking things off the list? But the question is, are you bearing fruit for Jesus? The vision statement of our church is every life bearing fruit for Jesus. If you remember back to the diagram that Jago used about the internal leading to the external, about being changed from the inside out, that so much of this series is about how we live out our faith in the world today. You know, in the way that we relate to others, in the way that we relate to culture, to the words that we use, the way that we relate to God. But actually, this all flows from being changed from the inside out. Good works, they do not lead to salvation. But being single-minded about Jesus, over time, it leads to good works. You don't work for your salvation. You don't earn for your salvation. But if your heart belongs to Jesus, over a period of time, you will be conformed more and more into the image of Jesus. Is that happening to you? You know, if only we knew what we were doing when we sing lines like, break my heart for what breaks yours. You know, the pain and the agony and the privilege of of having your heart broken for the things that breaks Jesus' heart. You know, the compassion that actually moves you to action. But this is what it means to be alive in Jesus Christ. To be fully alive, to have a a living faith that works. You know, the enemy, he wants a dead church. He wants a lukewarm church. A passive church. The enemy, he loves a doctrinally sound church. A church full of people that are puffed up in their orthodoxy. And the enemy, he also loves a church that is focused on deeds. Full of striving and effort and piety and religion, but only mentions Jesus once in a blue moon. There's nothing quite so self-righteous than deeds worked out of a heart of stone. And there's nothing quite so ugly as conviction without compassion. This, this passage, it's a, it's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call to, to worthy and shiny evangelicals with bullet points and convictions. It's a wake-up call to woke believers with their sanctimonious and trendy campaigns that seem to be more interested in man-made solutions than the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's a wake-up call to everyone in between. 
Because faith without works is dead. But works without a love for Jesus are also dead. Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, I know your deeds, but I wish that you are either hot or cold. You know, whichever nook or cranny of the church you place yourself in, it's this double-mindedness of not being red hot on fire for Jesus Christ. And to a church at danger of dead faith, the question today is not, do you have faith or do you have works? The question is, are you alive in Jesus Christ? Are you growing in your love for him? Are you growing in your love for others? You know, we all have our dry spells. But if you chart your faith, if you chart your life, month on month, year on year, are you growing in love for Jesus? Are you growing in love for those around you? Or are you just saying the right things and doing the right things, but your heart actually isn't changed? James writes in verse 26, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Are you alive with the Spirit of God? You know, Jesus, he did not shed his blood for us so that we could say the right things and do the right things. If he wanted that, he could have built a robot. And Jesus wants you. This is actually something far more dynamic. This is what a relationship looks like. And Jesus, he died so that you and I could come alive. You know, he looked at you and me in our poverty and in our dead state. And he didn't say, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed. He didn't say, good luck. No, he came and he met our deepest needs. He came and took us from poverty to riches, from death to life. He didn't come to make you a person of really deeply, profoundly private faith or a goody two-shoes. He came to make you alive. He came to give you a faith that works. You know, please let us not be a church where there's some of us who are excited about personal faith and there are some who are excited about social justice. You know, there's a false dichotomy if I ever heard of one. William Wilberforce and the Clapham sect, their, their faith was deeply personal, but it was never private. Because that is what faith is. It's personal, but it's not private. And they didn't choose between you know, the abolition of the slave trade and setting up the RSPCA on one side and setting up the Bible Society and evangelism and holiness and the reformation of manners on the other's. No, they fell in love with Jesus Christ. And as this love captured their hearts and their imaginations and their attention, they went from duty to desire. And that desire, that made them disciplined. Jesus saved them. Jesus made them useful. And Jesus, he brought them to life. What did Wilberforce do? Well, he just took the next step in obedience to Jesus Christ. You know, he was not double-minded. 
He was single-minded. He could have sat in all the comfort and privilege of his upbringing and his position in life. But he chose instead to place the full force and the full weight of his life on Jesus Christ. And as he sank into the grace of God and the love of God and the freedom that that is, it was not just good news for him, but it was also good news for the last and for the least and for the lost. If we are to be walking in the footsteps of Wilberforce and the Clapham sect, if we are to ensure that HDC does not only have an inspiring past, but also has an exciting future, because this is down to you and me now, then we need to be the people that just take the next step of saying yes to Jesus, saying yes to real love, saying yes to active love. Does your faith work? Are you alive in Jesus Christ? Amen. Amen. Um, just as we stay in an attitude of prayer, I'd love just to ask um, Will. We were praying before the service, and Will, not having heard Jamie's talk, had a picture. And so I've just asked him to, to come and share it with you. Thanks. Uh, yeah, we were just praying and uh, had a picture of an apple tree. Um, and very, it's this, the thing was someone went out to buy apples um, and with string tied the apples to the tree. Um, and I think it was a word for myself and for others who are possibly more concerned about seeing uh, to be seen to be fruitful um, as opposed to just trusting Jesus. Um, I was just praying about it and just a promise from Psalm 1 um, is that uh, the, the, the one who trusts in the Lord will be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does, does not wither. Um, so yeah, if you are trying hard um, and, and just want to come forward to prayer, then that'd be great.